Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What Do You Know About That? Hello, Mary Angela. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm great. Happy Thursday. Thursday's Little Friday. I love saying that. You always say that. that. I know, because it is. Thursday is Little Friday, (laughs) especially for me, who doesn't work on Fridays. (laughs) <laughs> yes, indeed. You are so blessed. I love it. To have Fridays off. I'm I'm super happy. Weather's nice. We're feeling good. Spring is coming. Thank you for complain. reminding me of these facts yes. when I drive into the office the following day. You're welcome. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> it is exciting. The weather's getting nicer. A lot more activities that are coming up and open and available for yeah. All kinds of weekend excursions. I'm really looking forward to it. Some musical events are popping up here and there. I'm I'm excited about. You know, local venues are opening back up. So all, all good stuff. All good stuff. What's going on this day in science? This day in science, March 24th. This day in science in 2017, Saturn's rings are much younger than expected. So in what may have settled a long-standing dispute on the subject... Images and data from the Cassini spacecraft provided strong evidence that Saturn's rings are far younger than the planet itself. This data, presented at a meeting of the American Geophysical Union, allowed astrophysicists to calculate the rings' relative weight, calculations that estimated them as much lighter than previously thought. So this measurement, combined with data regarding ice color and dust pollution, allowed some researchers to date the rings to a few hundred million years, quite young when compared to the four billion year old planet they encircle. But the real question is, Hmm. is are they older than a Twinkie? (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm sure a Twinkie can live longer than that. But at the moment, (laughs) Twinkies have not been around for four billion years. But that's interesting. So then those rings like kicked up from the planet, which means if there are other planets in our solar system that aren't quite that old, they could eventually get rings. Maybe if they're lucky enough. I mean, the Earth is going to have a a ring of dead satellites around it in the future. You know, 100 years from now, we're going to be encircled by probably rings you can see from other planets but it's actually going to be metal that's circling right. the earth and then some alien life forms are going to be zooming through and they'll be like hey that planet looks kind of cool yeah <laughs> hey look those rings are four billion years old <laughs> we'll see but that's cool I'm gonna stay in so science. yep this day in science march 24th nice. so what's on your radar for things going on in the neighborhood um a couple cool things going on in the neighborhood if you are in need of Salt. I realize now it's not snowing anymore, so you probably don't need salt. But if you want to stock up on street salt for next year, there has been a large amount of street salt dumped near the Highland train station, which I think is on the Chestnut Hill West Line. I like how you use the word dumped. I mean, it was dumped. That's exactly what it says. Somebody came in the middle of the night and dumped salt, a lot of it, which means it was probably like a street 
salt truck or maybe a private right. company's salt truck. And they were like, we're not going to need this anymore. We're just going to dump it here. And the problem with that, of course, is the rain comes and washes it down and it kills plant well, life. Well, yeah, runoff. And, yeah, it's not great. So the neighbors are encouraging you to grab a bucket and go pick up some of this salt at the Highland train station so that it can all get preserved and you can use it next year. I mean, it's perfectly good ice salt, but it really can't live in a giant pile at the Highland station. So uh, go by, check that out, pick up some salt for next season. Uh, hopefully I didn't just jinx this and a snowstorm's coming next week, but I think we're okay. I think we're out of the woods. Um, and yeah, please do your part. Help help out the neighborhood. Uh, another thing going on in the neighborhood that is worth noting is that there's going to be an electronics recycling. Oh, yay. And those are huge. People really, yeah. I mean, I have electronics that I need to get recycled. Well, then you want to put in your calendar Saturday, May 14th, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Chestnut Hill College, uh, which is right up at the top of the hill. Uh, if you don't know, that's 9601 Germantown Avenue. And you can drop off anything with a plug, anything that turns on and off. And they will actually take batteries this year. I was going to say, because I, I know we had a public service announcement for electronics recycling some time back. And I think that only was was for things like you said that had a plug so anything that was battery operated they wouldn't take but so will this, they take yes this flyer says batteries accepted so this one this they particular will battery operated they devices. will take battery do they operated actually recycle devices. batteries too yeah i don't know it doesn't I say that on here so. but it just says electronics recycling wired waste day anything that turns on and off with a plug or anything battery operated it says batteries accepted uh what they will not take is light bulbs do not bring your light bulbs they are not taking light bulbs. I don't think you can recycle light bulbs. You can't. But some things they suggest, air conditioners, dehumidifiers, air purifiers, flat screen TVs, microwaves, computer monitors, batteries. It's $1 per pound. So you can bring your batteries. If you've got a bunch of batteries and you don't know what the heck to do with them or how to recycle them properly, bring them. It's worth it. Definitely helpful. So May 14th, Chestnut Hill College, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Something else happening in the neighborhood, a little closer to uh, where we live, actually one block away. Are you familiar with Yes and Collaborative Arts? Yes and Collaborative Arts. I've heard the name. They've been around for... I think 15, 16 years in mm -hmm. the neighborhood. They operate out of the Mennonite Church that's right there, the church on Washington Lane. And they run camps throughout the year. So unlike the camps that happen at you know different places through the summer, they actually are a year-round type of camp. So your child can get involved in, um, they have creative arts programs, um, mostly in the, the vein of performing arts. Mm -hmm. And this year marks the 15th anniversary of winter sort of thing so every season that they run a camp you know they do a summer sort of thing that's the summer camp show they do a winter sort of thing that's the winter time show I mean winter camp show a fall sort of thing you know that's kind of it's kind of their thing and it's a show that's completely created by the kids involved uh, and then produced by them and performed by them and usually they perform it there at the Mennonite church but they have gotten quite large um, mm -hmm. particularly since pandemic and now they're at Venice Island, which is uh, the performing arts space in, I guess it's Roxborough. It's kind of on that line between Roxborough and, and Maniunk. Okay. It's a great performing space if you've never been there. And that is happening on the 27th, which I think is Sunday, Sunday, March 27th. Yeah, 15 years of winter sort of thing. It is at 4 p.m. It is suitable for all ages, and it lasts about an hour. If you want more information, you can go to Yes and Camp, yes and camp.org, and they'll give you all the information about that and how you get your tickets. And 
on the same day, but a couple hours earlier at one o'clock, they are world premiering their short film for the first time. Yes. And as produced a, a short film it's oh, a 30, cool. 35 minute short film written again by the participants of their program and the short film is called the root of the problem in the short film the root of the problem the team of documentarians have traveled into the forest where each tree is a living being that has within it a sprite who can move throughout the woods through interviews and found footage we learn about the lives of each sprite tree pair so it sounds Ooh. really fun Check it out if you're around and it seems like something you're interested in. More information at yesandcamp.org. Very cool. Just speaking of things going on in the city, this is one thing that popped on my radar that I thought would be really kind of cool. I mean, aside from maybe checking out the Harry Potter exhibit at the Franklin, which at some point we got to do that. Yeah. But there's also, I don't know if you've seen this, the Museum of Illusions that just opened up in Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, this is actually from an article dated on the 12th of March. So the museum opens today uh, near the Independence Mall. It's a relatively small space, about 5,000 square feet. But the space features optical and spatial illusion design to disrupt your eyes from your brain. So there are some of these optical illusions that I've actually seen. A lot of them use mirrors. Um, there's this one room where you walk through. It's like a little bridge, like a catwalk. And there is a tube that goes around the catwalk that has spinning light patterns that move. So as you walk through it, you literally like experience vertigo, like because it makes the room feel like it's like it makes it feel like you're moving, like you're about to fall. It's pretty wackadoo. Let's see. There's, where is there's that? some history here. Yeah, so it's near Independence Hall. The Museum of Illusions concept was born in 2015 and it has a number of franchises. So there's similar locations to this all across the U.S., uh, some of which include Miami, Chicago, Houston, and New York. It's actually, I'm looking through this here to see where specifically, if it has the address. No, it just says near Independence Hall. It says the it's in the Philadelphia Museum, sharing a building with the newly opened Bible Museum. Uh, it was supposed to open a few months ago, but encountered some delays in permits and construction. So, yeah, if you're if you're downtown and uh, you're looking for something kind of fun and ex- interesting to do, uh, check out the Museum of Illusions. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I might have to might have yeah. to see what that's all about. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about that's going on in the community. Uh, this is a very interesting topic that just came up like yesterday and already has a hundred and fifty six comments on the thread. Oh, really? Yeah. Very short post. It says, what's going on with all the tractor trailers parking in the neighborhoods, the 18 wheelers? Please call 911 and get them ticketed. They should not be parked in the neighborhood. There are signs up that say no truck parking from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., but they violate that. So I understand. We used to live on Sedgwick where there used to be a tractor trailer parked outside the Acme. Mm -hmm. I would stay overnight. um, And that was pre-pandemic. So it's been going on for a hot minute. And I fully understand, especially if it's taking up valuable prime parking, but Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what's happening here. This conversation thread with 156 comments as of just a few moments ago is very interesting because a lot of community members came to the defense of these tractor trailer drivers. So what they're doing, if you don't know, is they're sleeping. They're parking the truck and they sleep in the truck. Probably unloading, right? Well, they've unloaded and then they can't hit the road again right now because they need sleep. 
So they find a place to park and they get in the back of their tractor trailer and they sleep. And I personally would rather someone pull over in my neighborhood and sleep in their truck like that, you know, Mm -hmm. than get back on the road and have an accident, get back on the road and, and, and hurt somebody trying to get to some place that someone else finds more suitable. Now, again, some people asked, is this tractor trailer taking up valuable parking? Because we all know about parking in the city and it's hard. And no, that's not what's happening because they're not parking on streets that are narrow within the city. I looked up where this was and it's on the very edges of the city line. So it's like right when you get on, you know, the parts of the city that sort of border on Winmore, like where East Mount Airy and East Germantown sort of border okay. on that area. Okay. And I think, you know, Oak Lane and, and Glenside, you know, it's, it's in, in that kind of area. And there are roads that are wider and there are spaces where they can pull over and park and sleep for a few hours and then go. And, you know, this the original poster was kind of getting called out and being like, what what is the concern? You know, and also we shouldn't be calling 911 because it's not an emergency. So just in case, so you know, if you want to make reports, it's usually 311. 911 is, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble, help now. And 311 is more like something's amiss in the neighborhood. So just to be clear about that. But also it's, you know, yeah, it's about what would you, what would you rather? Well, I mean, I can understand an argument. There's not really a whole lot of space to accommodate and it's going to create problems. Granted, it's already an uh, obstacle course driving through the neighborhood because you've got that added on top of things like construction and roadways that are in disrepair and people who are double parking. So it's just like another But this is in grievance. the middle of the night when there isn't right. as much traffic, okay. right? I was like, have you stumbled across? Because even the one that used to park on Sedgwick when we lived there was gone by 7 in the morning. Right. You know what I mean? So this is an overnight. This is an I unloaded at midnight and now I'm parked here for the next six hours to sleep. And then I'm going to get on the road and go instead of taking off at midnight when I'm dog tired and I'm probably going to fall asleep at the wheel and hit somebody, have an accident, hurt somebody. Some of the comments that, that are on this thread are people like, "Okay, if you're really this concerned about it and it bothers you that much, stop buying things like don't go grocery shopping don't go get toilet paper don't go get you know because those trucks are bringing that to you and the least we can do is let them close their eyes for six hours before they go back to get the next load of all well of that. and and you could almost segue this into if we're talking about grievances here um it just makes me think about truck drivers who right now are struggling because of gas prices correct right you know so they're already sleep deprived now they're not making as much money because yeah, it costs a lot. Yeah, so. no, it's a thing. But, anyway, but we're not so. we're not going to go off on that tangent. We're not. I just um, I just wanted to bring that up because I I did think it was interesting that I think this person posted because they thought the community was going to get on board with the like yeah let's get this to stop and everyone was the opposite. But I mean that's why he posts <laughs> the stuff. You never know what people are going to say. Yeah. But throw it out there. You got to gauge the temperature of the community. It's sure. always a risk. So uh, what are we talking about today? In our well, actually, what you were just talking about is a kind of a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about. And it's kind of a broad subject, probably won't be able to cover it all in this episode. And that is food. 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 Everyone can get behind that subject, right? Are you going to give me food? It sounds like a delicious topic, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, food can be had after this segment here. Hooray. I promise. 
But I kind of wanted to talk about food just because it's it just seems like such a, a rudimentary thing, but there's so many different dimensions to food. And I, being someone who is very scientific-minded, I'm a huge fan of listening to podcasts like Freakonomics Radio, which talks about socioeconomic changes and how how the you know the relationship between those two and how they impact uh, the flow of goods and services and things like that, and you know and food really is a huge part of that and it's so critical to everyone right because okay Game Boys are nice technology's cool but you really need food to survive you can't live without it. Yup. How often I guess I'd pose the question to to you and to listeners when you're going into the grocery store or the convenience store, any place for that matter, and you're grabbing something off the shelf, do you ever stop and think about what goes into making that? I try not to. You try not to. <laughs> I try. You look Honestly, at those I'm ingredients like, um, on the label and you're like, oh my God, I don't know how to pronounce these what things. What is xanthan gum? It appears in everything. <laughs> xanthan gum. What is that stuff? And I'll answer that question in a moment, but do you ever stop? And, and look and read at the ingredients. You say you try not to, but it's it's really important that you do. And and we really want to encourage people, anytime you're putting anything into your body, you probably want to double check what is it that you're putting in your body. But yeah. considering that we're so dependent on the food industry that manufacturers, that's right, food is manufactured. Everything that you grab that's in a box has been manufactured, okay? Yeah, at some point it was probably pulled from the ground, but it does, you know, frosted flakes do not grow on trees, as we all know, nor do Twinkies. They're manufactured. What? I what? just planted a Twinkie tree. Darn <laughs> a Twinkie. <laughs> I was ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, may, now you're making me think about like lemon Twinkies. <laughs> mm, like a lemon Twinkie tree. The lemon tree. Twinkie tree isn't real either. <laughs> that guy sold me a bill of goods. Okay, okay. Anyway. Let's back up a little bit. So, <laughs> all right. So the food industry, and that, that, that in, encompasses how food is grown, how food is processed, where it's processed, and then how does it make it to the shelves at your grocery store. But we have to, I think, take a, a, a more holistic view of food and, and think about things, and I, I don't want to you know, necessarily turn this into a discussion about um, the environment or uh, global warming, but when you look at food, you have to think of it holistically, and if we are growing things out of the ground that become the, the, the source of our food, whether we're eating directly from, say, plants, or if we're using that to, to feed animal livestock that you know we're then consuming, you know, the environment is a huge factor that plays into that, obviously. So there's, there's some aspects of that I kind of wanted to touch on, and then talk a little bit about some of the practices involved in, in how we cultivate food, and, and talk about just some of the trends that we see emerging. Things like, obviously, there's a huge movement towards moving away from animal agriculture. So we'll talk about some aspects around that, and s some of those alternatives that people are familiar with and some of the ones are just starting to emerge so um strap your booties on i'm ready you're ready okay so i kind of wanted to start off here taking a quote from the usda so united states department of agriculture the usda certainly is is keenly aware of the if we look down the path of 25 years from now and so we're, we're really using 2050 as sort of the set point 
currently the world population is just short of like 7 billion or something, right? And we're looking to, I think by 2050, hit around 9 billion. So in terms of food production, it's expected to ramp up or in order to meet the needs of the population, we have to boost our food production at least by 48%. So you're essentially like increasing it by what a third uh which is pretty massive and a lot of those land resources are are dedicated to um doing intensive farming you know for crop manufacturing and about a third of that a third of the global crops that are produced are used to feed the livestock that we consume so this is a statement taken directly from the USDA. If you go to their website, you will see this as sort of like the banner mission statement based on the, the current administration's intent to address issues tied with, um, it's not, they're not calling it the Green New Deal, I don't think anymore. It's, it's part of the, the larger package to sort of build back better um, under the current administration. But part of that extends to farming and how we address things like climate change. So with variation at local, regional, and continental scales, climate change is projected overall to impact crop production by reducing both quantity and quality of the crop yield. So remember how I went back and said by 2050, we were expected to boost production by 48%, but now we've got this climate change that is presenting a challenge to that so altering optimal growth season periods, right? Mm-hmm. So you're talking about changes in uh, temperature cycles, weather patterns, uh, where water's moving to and from. So we're seeing areas becoming more dry and arid. And certainly that, that leads to things like civil war and civil unrest. But in terms of immediate concern, you know, the impact is to the growing season which can result in likelihood of crop failure and damage. So similarly, livestock production will be impacted by reducing the quantity and quality of pasture and forage, lowering the yields of field grain, affecting livestock health and fostering the spread and resilience of pathogens and parasites. So that's the other half of it. Pathogens and parasites, we're all familiar with those, Mm -hmm. right? That can affect livestock and development. So... Part of the initiative of the USDA is to really look at ways of uh, maximizing the uh, approaches to how we manage the landscape and addressing specifically water issues like irrigation. So this almost kind of harkens back to a a time period I know you're familiar with because you watched the Ken Burns documentary about the Dust Bowl. Yeah, the Dust Bowl. Right. So what what do you remember from the Dust Bowl? Well, I remember that it was... It was a man-made situation. It was because we over, over tilled the land, basically, and right. so by doing that, because everybody went west and everybody was like, "I can have land now, and I'm going to be a farmer," that then suddenly, the the soil stopped being able to support that, and it basically turned to dust, which then created dust storms, like these big giant storms that just blew through and dumped dust everywhere, and and nobody could grow anything, and it was terrible exactly and some of the ways we've we farm nowadays take some of the lessons learned from you had basically the uh, army of engineers that came out right Mm -hmm. came out and then did a couple things to bounce back the land and one of those was how they would actually till the land so instead of tilling against if you want to call it the grain or the the contour of the surface of the of the land they would actually cut 
shelving more or less into it so they'd follow the natural contour of the land for seeding as well as for irrigation so that's a piece of it you know and the other thing too a concept i wanted to uh, address here because there was a a ted talk i had seen not too long ago that really touched on a very salient point have you ever heard of the concept of or the difference between farming intensively versus extensively. Do you know what I mean when I say intensively versus extensively? Well, it sounds like intensively would be like really focusing on how you're farming and the sort of like path that, that you take, that the, I don't know, the plan that you lay out for the farming and extensively sounds like doing a lot of farming, like farming broadly, like, you know, a lot. Kind of. So, if you think about the way we farm nowadays, a lot of the crops that you see, and you don't have to drive far, right? You can drive central PA, right? And you'll hit tons of farmland corn. where you'll see, yes, <laughs> so much massive corn. fields <laughs> All of the corn. corn. Uh, and, and soybeans. Right, and soybeans. So that's another point you make. In terms of crop production, the U.S. primarily produces corn and soybean. So that is what I mean by intensively. Intensively means you farm the heck out of one crop. You gotcha. make a ton of one crop. Now, there's some downsides to that, as you know, and this is similar to what resulted in the Dust Bowl situation where you farm intensively. You make one particular crop. You make so much of it in a small space. It depletes a lot of nutrients from the soil, so you got to have fertilizer and means to replenish the soil. You can uh, only turn those crops over so much, and then you've got to worry about things like insects because the way you're farming, you're trying to maximize your yield and quality of yield. So uh, it, it, there's some challenges that come with that. Now, when I talk about farming extensively, it's sort of the opposite of that. And what I mean by extensively means is instead of focusing on one singular crop, you diversify and you have different crops. So by diversifying and, you know, it's amazing because the concept of diversification stems well beyond just sowing seeds in the ground. Uh, in this particular talk, though, this was actually not about focusing specifically on plants, but on fish. So he was talking about eating fish. And another example of intensive farming, if you talk about animal agriculture, is offshore fish farms. So offshore fish farms, similar to how you would think of like a cattle ranch, you have fish that are enclosed in a massive netting system. So they're all crammed in one location. They generate a lot of, a, a huge concentration of waste in one location. Oh, yeah, I can right? imagine. Right? So yeah. it's, it's unhealthy for the you know the biome within the ocean where they're being sequestered offshore uh, now you have big businesses right compared to small fishermen and so they're looking at maximizing profit so they'll end up cutting corners in terms of like what the fish are fed that's why the store-bought salmon that you buy are stained pink because they're not wild occurring salmon which based on the diet of a wild salmon is what actually contributes to the coloring of the, you know. The, the so meat. we eat salmon and it's dyed pink so that it looks like. So it looks like wild salmon. What That's is this right. poor salmon eating? <laughs> well, in some cases, and this is a little mind blowing, uh, they'll eat 
usually it's like a commercial food that it's like pelleted material and oftentimes will be consisted of chicken right <laughs> you're, you're feeding, feeding fish chicken to, to fish. fish right which is so wrong but uh, and again, it, in terms of the, the nutritional content of that fish, it's going to be much different than, say, a fish in the wild. And yeah. I think that's so the, this, this, the idea of extensive farming then is more like creating um, uh, a, 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 a small, what's the word, ecosystem, essentially, where you're not just farming, say, the fish. The fish, you would irrigate the land, you'd have fish living there, but then they would draw other forms of life like birds and then other, um, you know, wildlife then that creates this little ecosystem that feeds into it. So then you'd still have fish that you can harvest for human consumption and still have plenty to go around to feed the birds and other wildlife. But now you've contributed to a living ecosystem. You're cultivating, again, more diversity which is more healthier for the environment in the long term. So there's this difference between extensive and intensive farming. Now, another question I'm going to ask you, because this is something that we've really seen to emerge in the grocery stores and, and a lot of hype around this idea of going organic, right? Mm -hmm. And doing the approach to organic farming. What do, do you know anything about organic farming and how does that compare to, say, uh, more commercial forms of farming? Like when you hear organic farming, you're thinking, oh, this is this is good for the environment, right? Right. Or that it's natural and it's, you know, they're not organic means you're not putting in like synthetic things into your food. Right. Right. So. Here's something I want to demystify a little bit. There's a, a line that you cross where, okay, when you're thinking of something organic, there's a point at which when you get down to things like plant food, where plants are really consuming essentially just raw chemicals. And this is perfect for me because I'm, I'm, I'm into, into the chemistry piece of it. So it, it, it's not necessarily like it has to be derived from like a living source in order to feed back into living source because again plants are take uptaking small amounts of these um they're, they're usually nitrogen containing compounds nitrogen in particular nitrogen and carbon but the carbon most plants are getting from the co2 that's in the atmosphere co2 combines with the um, photosynthesis with inside of all green plants as we know and that actually facilitates respiration and the plants grow. One of the myths I'd like to bust specifically for organic farming has to do with how good it is for the environment. Um, there was a really great uh, episode of Fresh Air and they're interviewing a farmer who does both organic and commercial farming. The one of the things that he doesn't like about organic farming is they are required by law to as part of organic approach, they use natural fertilizers, essentially manure. Yeah. Right? Poop. Poop. It's poop. It's poop. <laughs> so the problem with that is there's a lot of nitrogen in manure, but if you compare it to a commercial fertilizer, a commercial fertilizer gives you a concentrated dose of nitrogen in a very small amount, right? So the plants uptake it very quickly. Now, that's great for a quick growth cycle. With manure, it releases nitrogen very, very slowly, right? Because it's organic material, it's got to break down first in order to create those smaller 
molecules, those nitrogen-containing compounds that get absorbed by the plants. So what doesn't get absorbed by the plants, then it contributes to runoff into groundwater. Yeah, yeah so now we have uh, concerns with groundwater. Now, and, and this is another thing, excess nitrogen in agricultural systems can be converted to nitrous oxide, which is, I think it's NO2, through the nitrification denitrification process. So nitrous oxide is a very potent greenhouse gas with 310 times higher greater global warming potential than carbon dioxide. So nitrous oh, so oxide. So if we're all worried about burning fossil fuels and but yet we're doing a whole lot of organic farming. Yeah, farming. We're yep. we're just we're contributing just as much. Yeah, yeah. Well, so if if you mm. dial it back and maybe look at say let's talk about animal agriculture here for a second too so there's there's just growing food and then there's there's the impact to global warming animal agriculture contributes to about eight percent of global greenhouse gas emissions and specifically that's from cattle and swine that are essentially farting it's cow it's it's, it's cow yep. and pig farts <laughs> methane poop it's poop <laughs> yes always comes so, back to the poop right the devil's in the poop <laughs> <laughs> so uh that's one argument to move away from animal agriculture mm-hmm. some of i mean there's obviously the big one right there's the moral aspect of it but if we think of it in terms of the impact to um, our global environment and our global economy and food supply it's not really sustainable long term right. yeah that's what i keep hearing yeah yeah, and, and again, a third of our global crops go to feed these animals, um, and then, of course, the greenhouse gas contributions. The other thing that's really interesting, too, uh, and you may have heard about this, is, okay, the question of water consumption, right? So you've ever heard the, um, the or been, ever researched, it's, it's the question of how much, it's how many pounds of grain and how many ounces of water go into, say, like an ounce of beef, right? Mm-hmm. And I've looked at a number of different s- statistics, and they all kind of hover around the same. You see some slight different variations in them, depending on who's, t- uh, you know, who the researcher is and what they're taking into account. So some take into account, well, okay, calves, they feed off their mother's milk, but then you got to f- consider, well, the, the mother's also consuming grain, right? So if you go to watereducation.org, they have some really cool little factoids, and we're going to have a little game here. I'm going to ask you a little, um, a quiz here. Uh, but in just, just really quick, the Water Education Foundation, they published the special report, Water Inputs in California Food Production. So that's where these, these numbers come from. So the report analyzed water use in California food production, so per serving for 27 tabletop items and found per pound for 34 items. So it's an interesting little list here and I think gives you some perspective. So quiz time, Mary Angela. Okay. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. So how much water does it take to produce the following here? So first on the list is one cup of lettuce. How many gallons of water do you think it takes to produce one cup of lettuce? Let's say 100. Wow, that's a lot of gallons. Yeah. Uh, You're actually, it's closer to uh, three. So about three (laughs) gallons. So just give you some perspective here. Okay, Okay. so now we're kind of, now I have some perspective. So it takes about three gallons of water to feed one or produce one cup of lettuce. So now let's slowly start to move up the list here. 
Uh, now we go from that to something that we use quite often when we're cooking, doing baking, right? It's sugar. So one tablespoon of sugar, how many gallons of water do you think goes into making a tablespoon of sugar? Five. Close. Seven gallons. Seven wow. gallons of water going into one tablespoon of white sugar. Okay. Now let's move into refrigerated items here. Some of the, the more commercially available items and the most ubiquitous, of course is bread so a slice one single slice of white bread how many gallons do you think it takes 12. Ooh, so close 11 ah. gallons 11 gallons of water okay now let's start moving over into animal products here all right so we'll start with dairy here uh third or it's just actually 0.36 ounces of butter how many gallons do you think it takes to make 0.36 ounces of butter 22 mm ooh so close well actually you're 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 off by a factor of 2 so 46 gallons wow 46 gallons of water it takes to make 0.36 ounces of butter 0.36 ounces would probably be enough to spread on you know uh you might be able to butter two pieces of toast with that Jeez. okay on to our favorite breakfast treat an egg how many gallons of water does it take do you think to make one egg one chicken egg 60. Ooh, that's actually really close 63 gallons 63 63 gallons, gallons. Okay, and now here's where it starts to get a little bazonkers. Okay, an eight ounce chicken. Eight ounce chicken. Eight ounces is not a lot, okay? You know, it's like the size of a soda can. Eight ounce chicken. How many gallons of water do you think does it take? 100. Try 330 gallons wow. of water. All right. And then last but not least, this is sort of the gold standard for comparison here. An eight ounce steak. An eight ounce steak, how many gallons of water do you think? 900. That's actually close. It's about 1,232 gallons. Mm. 1,232, so 1,232 gallons of water. So one of the things that's interesting is nowhere uh, in most cases do you ever see when they f do calculations for the price of goods, food in particular, they never factor in water. Water is always assumed to be free, but in truth, it's not. And global water supply, in terms of what's drinkable, um, is becoming more challenging to manage. You know, you have to use natural filtration systems that we rely on, but also we use a lot of um, industrialized uh, filtration. I mean, heck, people, you got a Brita filter sitting in your refrigerator, right? right. To filter that water, that filter costs money. Right, and then you swap that filter out because it only lasts for so long. So, um, yep. in in terms of the grain thing, really quick, uh, it's estimated roughly a number again going back to the statistics around seventeen pounds of grain to produce one pound of beef. That's sort of the general. So now that sort of feeds into this whole um, idea of alternatives to meat, and everyone's familiar with the veggie burger and the most recent form of the veggie burger that has sort of caught uh, a new craze I think is the the um, 
what the impossible burger it's the beer the beyond burger the beyond burger right? right so do you know what what distinguishes that beyond burger from historical veggie burgers and why they it's it's felt that this sort of at least brings to burger eaters a more familiar burger experience it's a flavoring. It's a flavoring they put yeah. in it to make it taste like a to taste like beef. It is, and it's more specifically um, a flavoring that's tied to f- the form of iron. So one of the things that gives beef that amazing smell when you cook it is something that is just inher- inherently part of red meat, and that is iron. Right? You've got iron in your blood. That's what makes your blood red. Uh, but it's a specific form of iron. It's called heme iron. And it's this form of heme iron that when you sizzle the the beef on the heat, it gives it that smell. So they actually put heme iron in these veggie burgers to give it that smell and flavor. Now, beyond that, there's some other things that are starting to emerge. And one of those is called cultured meat. Right. So I would love to do another episode and talk all about cultured meats and meat alternatives because, I mean... I am very interested in that, but we are getting dangerously close to out of time. Sure. So, uh, and, I, and I don't want to. I don't want to shortchange that topic. So that's where I was like, this is this is a big topic, and we've touched on grains and agriculture. So how about in t- um, two episodes, you come back and continue this conversation, and we can talk about cultured meats and ways that we see food agriculture and food science going. To the next step because this is all like I mean you still haven't told me what xanthan gum is and I am very interested in that but <laughs> okay so really quick xanthan gum xanthan is short for the phylum of bacteria so it's actually busted up bacteria the walls of bacteria that's what xanthan gum is and that's why it's all oozy and snotty so when you're pouring your, your awesome. salad dressing, that's why you see With the xanthan gum in it, I'm pouring mm-hmm. something with bacteria in it. Well, really quick, again, we're going to pick this topic back up and talk a little bit more about food and agriculture and get, maybe get some, hopefully, some thoughts from our listeners here because it's a really interesting topic and there's a lot that we can talk about here, so... Yes, please email us at whatdoyouknowgtown at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at what uh, do you know about that, all one word. Uh, you can message us on either of those platforms or send us an email because, yes, we will be continuing this conversation uh, in, in a couple weeks. All right. Uh, stick around. We've For our musical guests for uh, who are the musicians in our neighborhood today, we are joined by Sapphire. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. Hey everybody, welcome back. Thanks for listening. It is time for one of my favorite segments, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And today we are very excited to welcome Sapphire who is joining us. Welcome. Hello. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me to this beautiful platform. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. And we're really excited to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, as you know, I'm an artist. I've been singing for over 30 years. Okay. 
I recently became an independent artist. In fact, a couple months before everything shut down, I had decided to, around January of 2020, I decided to start writing my own material, but I was just gonna write like a song here, a song there, and put a band together and perform. So that's when it all started during that time. Unfortunately, things shut down. And so what I did was I, of course, became a little stressed and overwhelmed because I had started planning to do a show and introduce my band to everyone. So what I did was instead of releasing my uh, music in June, I released it in May. And, um, and pretty much I've been writing, I'm a multi-versatile artist. And uh, I, as you know, I, I write all types of music. I love jazz, blues, R&B, pop, big band music, classical mm-hmm. music. I just love music. And I love, um, and I love performing all types of music. I've always been that way ever since I was a little kid. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. Very cool. So, so you mentioned you just now embarking on a solo career what sort of work were you doing prior to becoming a solo artist so you said you sang for 30 years what does that involve okay so i've been singing pretty much doing wedding bands and doing background vocals and background singing for other bands and tribute bands i was in a band called the first ladies of rock and soul where i portrayed diana ross Nice. I did that for 11 years. And pretty much I wanted to, of course, branch out and start doing my own thing, create my own style so people can get to know me. Yeah, I took a chance. I took a risk and I decided to do this during the craziest time. But um, but it was a lot of challenges, which actually helped me, believe it or not, because it allowed me to really um, focus on what I needed to do in reference to me getting out there. It, it allowed me to be a little bit more creative mm-hmm. with everything being shut down. So I had a lot of challenges, but it actually, it was a good challenge because I don't think that I would have been able to do as much as I've done, as much as I've done if things weren't shut down, if that makes sense. I get that story. So it seems like it's either one extreme or the other. For some people, they just, everything's just shut down and they just don't have any time or, right. or whatever. But on the flip side, there's a number of artists that we've actually talked to who are like, yeah, everything just kind of quiet down. So I now have more energy to, I'm not busting yeah. my hump going out and gigging so much. So now I have time to focus right. on honing my craft a yep. little bit at home, you know, doing a little more introspective exactly. type work. Right. But I want to say this, uh, my first job is me being an edu- in the educational system. So I've been a teacher forever. And also um, now that I'm a principal of a school, what? private school. Yeah, so that's what I do. That's my full-time gig. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't know you were the I've principal. Been <laughs> I've been doing that for over 30 years as well. So between me doing that and also writing my music, it kind of it kind of helped me because what I do is I also design curriculum mm-hmm. for schools. So with me designing and creating, I'm always, my brain is always all over the place. Oh, yeah, so that's no why, doubt. That's why I'm a multi-versatile artist too because... I have that skill in reference to creating. And so I know how to bring things to life, if that makes sense. I also know how to bring lesson plans and curriculum to life so that people can see what their children are learning. So I kind of incorporate that in reference to my style of writing with my music. That's why I can write so fast. I mean, I, 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 I write a song and this is no lie. If I, if I hear a song and I really like the track, I can write a really nice song 
probably within an hour or two. Mm-hmm. But I just have to be, you know, in my own in my own zone, in my own world where everything has to be peace and quiet. Um, and that's when I do a lot of my writing. So, oh, yeah. yeah. No, understood. So it sounds like you've had, even though you've been doing a lot of these gigs, which basically are like like cover tunes, you're, you're playing other people's music, but it sounds right. like you've had some ideas around some original tunes that you've been kind of brewing, or you know, do you have like a team that you collaborate with? How's like yeah, the whole writing a, process for to, you? Right, I don't have an actual team. However, I do, I have, I've done collaborations with other um, musicians. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so because I'm on a lot of different platforms, I've, I've begun networking with um, different people or different musicians from each platform. But one of my, my major platforms that I really connect with musicians is Twitter. And so I was able to meet a lot of musicians from all over the world. And, you know, we've always exchanged music and we're always promoting each other's music. And so like producers reach out to me and they say, you know what, with your style of singing, you know, I'd like to produce a song for you. I've done my I've, my last my recent song that I've just done got to try was is actually um, done by this producer from the UK. His name is Timmy Clover, and then I've done a collab with um, a rap artist from Detroit. So like I have like people from all over the world that um, have reached out to me, or I've probably reached out to them because I like their style, mm-hmm. and we just kind of worked together and, and and created some some material together. That's what I love about the platforms. So I'm wondering. Yeah. Um, about when you know you talked a little bit about you know you've been doing this for a very long time did you always know where did where did you kind of get your start did it start in a choir did it start in school did it start in church like when did you know you wanted to be a singer and and an artist it's funny that you said it because and i share this all the time believe it or not i am extremely shy that's number one so i've been singing forever i've been singing as far as i can remember eight years old my mother she said no you was three years old i'm like mom i can't remember if i was three (laughs) years old i don't know i just remember me being in the bedroom and waiting for everyone to be downstairs right and then when everyone would be downstairs that's when i would sing my heart out but some one day i all of a sudden decided i wanted to share with my mother and father that i could sing and i just took a chance i went downstairs i was about eight years old that's what i can remember and they were in the kitchen having a discussion and i just like became like so bold i was like i know how to sing so they thought it was funny they thought i was joking i'm like no i can sing they never knew this. According to my mother, she's I've known this since I was three. But I remember me having this conversation with my mother and father. And I just started singing. And they were just like, I mean, I was singing my heart out. Make a long story short, from that day, I um, I, I guess I built up a little, a little uh, courage to sing in school. And so I started singing in elementary school on a choir. I sang all through junior high, all throughout junior high school, high school. And also singing my high school um, graduation, and of course I've done um, uh, weddings and and funerals for family members and friends. You know, started out like that, and then I started going to like jam sessions to kind of build up my confidence. And um, and I still wasn't as far as I was concerned. Um, I had the vocals, but I didn't have that that um, I wasn't connected with the audience. And I didn't feel confident. So what I did was I went to modeling school and I went I, I went to modeling school so that I could learn to be poised on the stage and so that I would be able to, you know, to bring other things with my singing so that I could connect with the audience. And I wound up doing pretty good with the modeling and started modeling. 
and also singing and it also enhanced my music my musical abilities as well so it all stemmed from all of that stuff the older i've gotten the more courage and the more uh i felt more confident performing in front of people yeah so maybe to that note who's been a big influence on you the biggest influence on me Mm -hmm. well as you know diana ross i portrayed her (laughs) because i i love the way she's just so poised and she's very she demands attention i've always loved that about her um Dionne Warwick, uh, Chaka Khan. Yes, yes. There, yeah, a lot of, a lot of. Um, I have a little bit of, a little bit of, all of those styles in me and myself. I can hear it. Um, the newer artists, um, I absolutely love Jill Scott. So like a lot, and I'm talking about the newer artists mm-hmm. that are out. Yeah, it's funny when you mentioned Diana Ross because I hear it in your voice, but you also kind of have the look. You could totally, you totally. Everybody say that. Everybody say that it's funny. I guess it's the eyes, I guess. I don't see it, but I've heard people say that to me. I've heard plenty. Oh, I can hear it. Let's talk about the song that you sent us. Um, I, we just listened to it. Uh, I got to hear it. I I love it. It's great. Um, Thank you so much. Tell, tell us, tell us about it. Why, why did you choose this one to send us? How did it? How did it come about? What, what do you like? Well, that's my, that's my, um, my latest song that I just released. And that's number one. And number two, that I think that song is something that everyone needs to hear right now because because of all of the craziness that is unfortunately happening in our world, you know, I'm always um, reflecting on things that are happening and the surroundings and just watching all this sadness. And I said, you know what? I think people need to hear a song that will inspire them, a song that will encourage them to try encourage them not to give up. So I wanted to write a song to kind of heal and help people. Cause that's pretty much when, when I'm writing all my songs, that's what I pretty much try to focus on trying to get through to people so that it can help them. Right. So you mentioned this song, you, this was a collaboration with a producer from the UK, you said? From the UK, that particular song. Yes. His name is Timmy Clover. He's from the UK. He is an awesome uh, producer. He uh, he actually reached out to me. Nice. And um, and so we've been we've done. He, I did this song with him, and I'm about to write another song to another track that that he sent me. But yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Well, we definitely want to talk about where we can find your music in a minute, but let's take a quick listen to this track. Okay. okay. All, right, All right. So uh, this is Sapphire. Gotta try.
That is a great tune. I really did enjoy it. And I can I could hear many different influences and styles in it. And I think that's what originally appealed to me so much about it. And that's why I asked, you know, about your past and, and where you, you know, how you got your start, because I feel I feel like there's a lot of that in there, like hearing your story right. and hearing all, all the routes you took and how you learned from I can hear it in that. It's yes. great. It's well, great. it has a for me has a very modern hip hop kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, where can people find your music? Well, you, they can find me on all major platforms. Uh, there's so many I can't even, re- I can't even re- recall all of them, but I will say the ones that we're used to hearing all the time. Spotify and um, Sapphire is my name on Spotify. If they can't, because there may be one, a couple more Sapphires out there, they type in the song, the title of the song, I'll come right up. Um, so Spotify, Apple Music, my name is Sapphire, of course, on YouTube, which is Sapphire Goddess. Once again, if you type in the title of a song with my name, all my songs will come up. Instagram as well. Instagram, mm-hmm. um, Sapphire underscore Faded underscore Jeans. That's the name of my band, Sapphire Faded Jeans. Oh, I love it. And, um, and also um, Facebook, which is Sapphire Faded Jeans. And I do, and I do have a web, my own website, which is Sapphire Faded Jeans, spelled with a G, G E N E S. Great. Yes. Fantastic. Well, yeah. we wish you the best of luck, and we are excited to hear more stuff from you in the future. 
thank you. And I just want to thank both of you again for allowing me this wonderful opportunity to be on your platform. I thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Well, and likewise, if we didn't have artists like yourself, we wouldn't have a show. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah. Thank you.